Well, as you're taking a seat, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Ephesians chapter 4, to the passage our friend Abigail just read for us. Ephesians chapter 4, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Uh, that resource is in the beginning of every Bible, and uh, you're encouraged to utilize that so you can navigate the Bible, which is a really big book. Find your way to the book of Ephesians, which is a, a letter in the middle of the New Testament towards the back of your Bible that we've been studying for several weeks now, uh, trying to wrap our minds and our hearts around this thing called church. And what we're discovering in the book of Ephesians is that the church is where God's grace is made visible to the watching world. And we're recognizing the centrality of the church in the purposes of God. And our hope and our prayer as we study this letter together is that we would fall in love with being the church all over again, that we would see that we are a people who've received grace. And as we have received grace, we want to relay that grace to one another in our relationships and to the watching world, to the city of Seattle in particular. So Ephesians chapter 4, and as you find your way there to verse 7, I've been thinking a lot about growing up lately, uh, mainly because I'm a dad and I have three kids. I have an eight-year-old daughter named Delaney, a four-year-old son named Asher, a three-year-old daughter named Adeline. And each one of these kids I love tremendously, but they are growing up so fast. I've been told more times than once that at this stage and during this stretch of life that the days are really, really long, but the years are, um, yeah, the years are very short, that time just flies by, and that has certainly proven to be the case in my own journey as a father. So I've been thinking a lot about growing up, and when I think about my kids, I, I want them to grow up. I want them to experience many days and many years in this life. But what's more important to me than just them growing up in age is that I want them to grow up in maturity. I want them to become mature human beings who are responsible with the lives in which they live and who are making contributions to the communities that surround them. I want them to mature in those kinds of ways. And you know as well as I do that time is not a sure indicator of maturity. Uh, that time doesn't equal maturity. This is why when I was at a college football game not too long ago and there was this man who was screaming till he was red in the face and his veins were popping out of his neck at this 19-year-old kid who dropped a pass and he's screaming from his seat, just losing his lid, take his scholarship away. And it was, a, it was quite intense for a football game, a guy yelling this at an 18-year-old kid. He was clearly in his 50s, but it was clear to me that time does not equal maturity. Well, when you think about time not equaling maturity, we want to think about our own spiritual lives. We want to think our own journey with Jesus. We want to think about the life of the church. Because time does not equal maturity in the Christian life. You may be someone who has called yourself Christian and who has had a relationship with Jesus for many years. But just because you've known Jesus for a long time, that doesn't necessarily mean you are maturing in your faith. Because time doesn't equal maturity. The same thing can be said for churches. There are churches who've been around for a long time, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and at different stretches and during different seasons, those churches perhaps have lacked maturity in various areas because time doesn't equal maturity. And so what we want to think about tonight is how do we grow up in maturity? How do we grow up as followers of Jesus? And how do we grow up as a church? How do we mature together? 
And we want to take this theme in light of the passage that we're reading at because this is essentially what Paul is getting after. And what I want to show you right off the bat is found right there at the end of verse 16 and point out to you the, the measure of maturity. How do you know if you are maturing as a follower of Jesus? How do we know if we are growing up as a church? Well, Paul tells us towards the end. He kind of gives us the measure or the mark of maturity. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, from him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself. How? Building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So the measure or the mark of spiritual maturity is this idea of love. So what makes a church mature isn't necessarily how long a church has been present in this city. We've only been present here for seven years. We're a very young church. But that time indicator isn't, doesn't speak to our maturity. It doesn't say that we can only grow so much because time doesn't equal Maturity. There are churches in the city who've been around for a lot longer. And, and if you're wondering, well, how do you know if they are a mature church? What are, what are you looking for? Well, you're looking for this dynamic of love. Are you seeing men and women who are falling in love with Jesus? Are you seeing men and women who are loving one another in relationships and in the fellowship of the church? Are you seeing men and women who are loving their neighbors as themselves? The way you mark and measure maturity in the Christian life and in the life of the church is how believers build themselves up together in love. And so Paul unpacks this whole dynamic of growing, of maturing as the church in this passage. And I'm just going to walk through it with you, looking at both what we all need to grow, uh, why we all need to grow, and then how we all need to grow. Now, one of the things before we dive in that I find interesting about this passage is that Paul is writing this letter to a church in a place called Ephesus, a, a younger congregation, and he's encouraging them to grow, to mature in their faith. But I love what he does in verse 13. Just to kind of point this out, because it's important, in verse 13, when he starts talking about growing and maturing, notice these two little words. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith. Now, the reason why I point that out is because as Paul, an apostle who's been walking with Jesus for a long time and has a significant role in the life of the church, when he's writing this letter to the church, encouraging her to grow and to mature, he doesn't exclude himself from the process. He doesn't exclude himself from needing to grow. And so what Paul reminds us of and what he is an example to us about is that every Christian always needs to grow. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, no, long, no matter what role you have in the church or in the kingdom of God, there's always things you need to learn. There's always areas of maturity that need to be developed. And so when Paul says, hey, look, I really want you to grow up, church, he's not excluding himself from the church. He's putting himself right there in the middle of it. Because every Christian in every church needs to grow together, needs to mature in building the church up in love. So let's look first at kind of what we all need to grow, which is what Paul gets after there in verse 7. He says in verse 7, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. He's saying, look, if we're going to grow and mature as a people, we need what Jesus gives. And what he tells us in verse 7 is that Jesus gives a lot of gifts, in fact, he gives each Christian what might be called a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. This is one thing that is true of every person who knows Jesus, who is filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been gifted by God to serve others in ways that will build them up in love. 
He has gifted each and every Christian in these ways. And so what we need, if we're going to build the church up in love, is we need every single Christian recognizing this reality. And every single Christian pressing into the life of the church so that they can discover ways in which the Holy Spirit has gifted and is gifted them so they can contribute to the loving service of others so that together we might build ourselves up in love because everyone is firing in light of their spiritual giftedness. Everyone is living in light of the ways God has wired them and gifted them and strengthened them and is empowering them to serve. And notice what he says next. He says, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then he says, then he quotes in verse 8 a passage drawn from Psalm 68. He says, for it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. Now, this isn't an exact quote of Psalm 68. This is Paul's kind of interpretation of that passage in light of the gospel. If you read Psalm 68, it's a remarkable psalm that outlines the victory of God how God was victorious in redeeming his people. And it's this picture of God leading his people up Mount Zion where they would worship him and enjoy him forever. And in the, in the process, as they're moving together, gifts are being exchanged. And here, Paul's taking that and he's applying that in light of the gospel to the church. And he's saying, look, when Jesus rose from the grave, he kept rising, that he ascended on high. And this is what he gets after in verse nine. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower the parts of the earth? He's reminding readers that yes, Jesus came down from heaven and he lived a life of perfect obedience only to go to the cross and die there. And so he died, he experienced death and burial in this world, but three days afterwards he rose from the grave And once he rose, he kept rising. He ascended to the right hand of the throne of the Father. And from that position of power, from that position of authority and exaltation, Jesus continues to serve the church by empowering the church to be who Jesus redeemed her to be. He's giving gifts to his people. And here we learn that he's given spiritual gifts to each of his children, each of his followers. So he says, the one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens to fill all things, that Jesus is giving gifts to his people. And what I love about this, another thing you want to consider as you you look at Jesus' example, that he was in heaven and he came to earth, he lived and died, rose again, then he went back to heaven. Think about that move. When Jesus sought to, to serve people or to bless people or to establish his kingdom, he didn't do it from afar. And he didn't do it from a throne. He did it through condescension. He, threw, he did it through humility. He stooped very low to serve you and me. He stooped very low to purchase the power we need to become the men and women Jesus has redeemed us to be. So when you think about the reason you have been gifted, the reason God has gifted you with spiritual gifts or he's redeemed the raw materials of your life as it relates to your talents and your skills and your abilities, those things that God gave you at birth. When you think about all of those dynamics, understand why. Understand why you were as smart as you are. Understand why you were as administrative as you are. Understand why you are as a good instructor or teacher as you are. Understand that all that God has given you, he's given you not to exalt yourself, but so that you might follow the wake of Jesus in stooping low and bending down to serve those around you so that more and more people may be built up, so that more and more people may be encouraged in their relationship with Jesus. 
And so the way that we leverage our spiritual gifts isn't like the church in Corinth. You may be familiar with the Bible, and if you are, there's another letter called 1 Corinthians that was written to a church that was quite haywire as it related to how they use spiritual gifts, that people were using spiritual gifts for more self-centered and self-exalting ways and reasons. And so Paul wrote that letter, said, look, you're, you're doing all these things. You've been gifted in some incredible ways. The Holy Spirit is at work because God is a God of grace. But you've got to understand that you are engaging these spiritual gifts for your own sake and not for the sake of the other. And we're reminded today that if we're going to build the church up in love, we must leverage our spiritual gifts not for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us so that we might love and serve one another in ways that help the church mature. And there's a lot of passages that deal with spiritual gifts. A lot more could be said about them, and we have talked about them in the past, and we will talk about them again in the future. But let's just move on through the rest of this, rest of this passage. Because not only does Paul talk about how we've been given spiritual gifts, and we need to use those gifts if the church is going to be built up, notice what he does in verse 11. He says, also recognize that we have been given spiritual leaders. Verse 11, he says, and he himself, that is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, saying he's given spiritual leaders to the church. And he lists out five spiritual leaders there, ranging from apostles to teachers. Now, a lot of conversation kind of has, has circulated these this particular list, trying to figure out what the, how this list kind of fleshes out in the life of the church. And, and, uh, but the one thing, uh, all the things that can be said about it, one thing that we know to be sure is that each and every one of these leaders in the life of the church, they are engaged in some way, they're engaged in the ministry of the word. That these leaders have been gifted to the church to engage in the ministry of the word in some nuanced kind of way. You think about the apostles. Apostles here, I don't think, refers to guys like Paul who in, interacted with the resurrected Jesus, who, who were commissioned directly by Jesus to go into plant churches. I believe apostles here kind of speak to those leaders who keep the church moving towards other nations, keep the church moving towards other cultures and other people groups on the planet. We would utilize the language of missionaries and church planners today that apostles remind us over and over and over again, and they go themselves in in the context of their faith family to the nation, saying, look, church, don't forget about others. Don't forget about the lost nations and the unreached people groups in the world. The apostles proclaim that word, and many of them are commissioned by churches to go and to carry that ministry of the word forward. But then also you have prophets here. Prophets remind us to remain faithful to the word of God. That prophets call churches out when churches have veered from what the scriptures teach. Prophets work hard in helping churches to maintain fidelity to what God has spoken and to what God has revealed. Then you have evangelists here. Evangelists, those who are constantly moving to the lostness. They're constantly telling the story of Jesus to those who do not yet know it or believe it. Evangelists kind of keep lostness on the radar of the church saying, look, as you gather together and as you serve together and as you love one another, don't forget there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people surrounding you who do not yet know this grace and who do not yet know this love. And so evangelists kind of prod the church in that direction to move towards lostness. Then you have pastors. Pastors use the word in their counsel of the body. They care for the church. They shepherd the church through the ministry of the word that is the scriptures. Then you have teachers. And teachers help the church to get educated. 
Teachers help the church to become more theologically minded and biblically sound. Teachers help people process information and understand concepts. These are all different types of leaders that Jesus gives to the church in service of the ministry of the word. Now, I share that with you because it's very important that you understand what the ministry of the word is designed to drive. Why are spiritual leaders given to the church? And you find out in verse 13. Notice what he says next. He says, these gifted leaders have been given. And then in verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. He's saying, I want you to know that these spiritual leaders, they have been given to the church in order to lead the church into ministry, to equip the church to do the works of the ministry. So the ministry of the word then fuels the works of the ministry. And what I want you to consider is this makeup of leadership in the church, because some of you perhaps have had bad experience with church leadership in the past. Church leaders, church, spiritual leaders who've stepped into a church believing that the church exists to provide them with a platform for expanding influence as if the church exists for leaders, but the church doesn't exist for leaders. Leaders exist for churches. And when God gives spiritual leaders to a local church, it's not so that local church can prop up that leader. He gives leaders to the local church so that those leaders may equip the saints and lead the saints to engage in the works of the ministry. In other words, spiritual leaders are given to the church so that we might expand your influence in the world that we might broaden your platform for ministry, that we might see you thriving as you serve Jesus wherever you live, wherever you learn, wherever you work, wherever you play. It's our role as spiritual leaders to come alongside you and to encourage you in your faith as you live it out in your daily life, making influence for Jesus, doing the works of the ministry all throughout the city of Seattle. And so that's our approach to understanding leadership in the local church. We are here to equip you. This means that ministry isn't something that we do for you. It's something that we do with you. This is why when we host something like our Imagine Creative Arts Camp happening this upcoming summer, this isn't something that Mark is putting on and that he's going to do for us. This is something that Mark, this is an opportunity Mark is leading out on, but he's leading out on with everyone's help. As more and more people get involved and they are drawn into that opportunity to serve and to do the works of the ministry so that more children and more families in this neighborhood can come, to, uh, come into gospel contact with the church. This is why we do the things that we do. Spiritual leaders do not do the ministry for us. They do the ministry with us. And what this means is, is that not only do we need everything that Jesus gives us, that we need spiritual gifts and spiritual leaders, it also means that we need each other that Jesus gives us to each other to make much of him in this city. And we, have to, and we are drawn into loving and serving one another for the goal of maturing and growing up in the faith. So those are some of the things that we need. We need spiritual gifts. We need spiritual leaders. We need each other. But then notice how or notice why we need to grow because that's where Paul goes next. He's saying, yes, the church has been gifted in some incredible ways, and our church has been gifted in some incredible ways, and we want to let those gifts flesh themselves out in ways that God intended. But then notice what he says next. He says, all of this happens so that because we all need to grow, verse 14, he says, then we will no longer be little children 
tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. He's saying we all, he's explaining why we all need to grow. And he uses this metaphor of of little children. Now the word translated little children there could also be translated infant. So when you read little children here, we're, we're thinking, think in terms of kind of that move from infancy to, to becoming a baby to becoming a toddler. We're talking about little human beings who are just now learning how to do everything in this world. And Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should not be stuck in unceasing spiritual infancy. And you should not be stuck in unceasing, in a, just a, in a loop of spiritual immaturity as it relates to being a toddler in the faith. He's saying we don't want to be little children because if we're little children, we're not, gonna, we're not going to be everything that God wants us to be in this world. We need to mature. And there's a few things you can think about as it relates to uh, how spiritual mature, immaturity relates to being little children or relates to being infants in terms of why we need to grow up together. If you think, just think about a child for an instant. I have my daughter Adeline, she's three now, but she was, uh, when she was one, it was clear to me and it was clear to her mom that she lacked discernment. Uh, she had a hard time telling the difference between what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false. And there was one instance where she was at the table and she had Play-Doh and Jello there all at the same time. And being a one-year-old small child lacking discernment, which one do I eat? And if she doesn't have us there to shepherd her and guide her and help her, she might choose wrong because in that, at that age she lacked discernment. Well, one of the reasons why we need to grow One of the reasons why we all need to mature in our faith is because many of us lack discernment. We have a hard time distinguishing between what is true and what is false. What is God honoring and what is God dishonoring? And so we want to mature in our faith so that we are no longer lacking discernment. We want to learn more about the scriptures. We want to learn more about who God is and what God is like so that we don't live our lives being pushed around by every new idea that comes our way in the name of Christianity. There are new ideas being floated all the time about what Christianity is and what the church should be. And if you're not careful, you can get knocked out of the faith because you're being hit with so many voices and these winds are blowing against you from so many different directions. But here we're reminded, look, just just get an anchorage. Start growing up in your faith by, by maturing in the context of a local church that has been given spiritual leadership and that is filled with people who've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve in all kinds of ways, plug into that so that you might grow and no longer be someone who lacks discernment. Another reason why we need to grow, not only because for that, is because, as you know, as a, as a, a toddler starts learning to walk, that they lack stability. Uh, perhaps you've all watched the, the toddler that's beginning to walk, walk for the first time and they pull his or herself up on uh, the coffee table and, and you can see them getting excited because it's fun to grow, it's exciting to grow and, and as they're experiencing and exploring things in a whole new way, it, it puts a smile on their face and they're, they're excited about what they're able to do and, and, but they're holding on to the table. And eventually they're going to take their hands off that table and they're going to try to walk and, and they may be able to take a couple of steps, but you know that that toddler isn't very stable, that their foundation isn't very firm and at some point in time they're going to fall down. 
But when they fall down, that doesn't mean they stay down. They're going to continue getting back up, and they're going to continue to grow up in that way so that they pick themselves up and they begin to learn to walk. But every toddler lacks stability. And so even if they do start getting more confident, they start taking more steps, if a bigger person in the room comes sweeping by them, the, en- the energy that they kind of put out is going to knock them over. Well, Paul is saying, this is how I don't want my church to be. I don't want the church to be. I don't want Christians to lack stability. I want Christians to find anchorage. I want Christians to find a foundation. I want the church to be deeply rooted in what will hold them together no matter what is happening around them. So we want to grow up in this way so we don't lack stability. One of the ways that this shows up in our Christian lives is that we often lack the stability when we are constantly living in light of what feels good rather than what is good. And one of the areas where we are most unstable as followers of Jesus is in our emotional health. And our emotions can get disordered, our emotions can get out of whack so that we are glad by things we shouldn't be glad about and we are angered by things that we shouldn't be angry about and our emotions can be disordered and all of a sudden we start allowing our feelings to call the shots in our Christianity. But there's not much stability there because you live in a world that is constantly hitting you from all types of angles. You're constantly being challenged from all types of directions. And so as you mature in your faith, you become more stable, learning to live by faith and less by feelings. Now, I believe feelings are important in the Christian life, and I believe they should be nurtured and cultivated in light of the gospel. Our feelings, our emotional lives can be redeemed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus, but also recognize that that takes time. And until, and as we are growing and maturing as followers of Jesus and as a church, we want to learn to live by faith and less by feelings. We want to learn to put our feet on the scriptures and not our feet upon some of the less reliable foundations that surround us. And so why we need to grow is so that we no longer get pushed around because we lack discernment or we lack stability. But then another reason why we need to grow is because, as you know, infants and toddlers can oftentimes be uh, self-obsessed. And it makes sense, right? For an infant to cry, it's because they're trying to survive. So we want them to cry, right? But as an infant kind of gets a little bit bigger and they start moving around and start interacting with other human beings, that's when you really begin to see this happen. They have a toy that they don't want anybody else to play with. They have all the toys that they don't want anybody else to play with, and they can hoard, and they can hide, and they can hold back. And, and there's just this self-obsession that characterizes a little child. And he's saying, look, we need to mature. We need to grow up in our faith so that we don't live self-obsessed lives, going all of our days in this world as if everything revolves around us, as if life is all about me, myself, and I, and we do not show responsibility for those around us, and we do not show loving, compassionate care for those around us. We need to grow because all of us, all of us are being pulled towards self-obsession in a myriad of ways. And so the reason why Paul is saying, look, the church needs to grow is so that because he knows that we all have more to learn, He knows that there are areas of imbalance in our lives, and he knows that there's a pull towards self-obsession. And so if that's why, if we've been gifted to grow, and if we have these reasons to grow, then, then how do we do it? How do we engage the process so that we can grow and mature together? I'll just give you three thoughts in light of this passage. Keep reading, beginning in verse 15, just wrap it up. It says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow, into, grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ 
From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So in order for you and I to grow together, it's going to require you and I both committing to sinking into the body of Christ. That we have to sink into the body of Christ. That we are all a part of the body of Christ and we need to own it. We need to sink into the body of Christ. This means that we want to not just show up to church. We don't want the extent of our Christianity and our discipleship to take place on Sundays from 4 to 5.30. We want to sink into the body of Christ so that we are interacting with one another outside of this time and outside of this space so that we're sharing life together and speaking truth into one another's lives. We want to sink into the body of Christ. We want to be in relationships Relationships in which we are known and which we know others and are known by others. In other words, we don't want to be ninja Christians. You know, the ninja Christian who can kind of sneak into a worship gathering and then sneak out undetected. They're pretty good at it. And, and I know that there are season stretches where that might be needed because that person's trying to figure this, that, and the other. But you don't want to live your Christian life there. You don't want to live as a ninja. If you live as a ninja, you're not going to know anyone. You're not going to be known by anyone you're not going to mature in your faith, and you're going to, there's a sense in which you will prohibit other people from maturing in their faith because there's a real sense. There's a real sense that I cannot mature apart from you. And there's a real sense in which you cannot mature apart from me. This is how God has woven the church together in one body with ligaments supporting each other and the body working together that we need each other to mature so we have to sink into the body of Christ. But then next, we want to seek to serve, not simply to be served. That if we're going to all grow together, we must seek to serve, not simply to be served. Now, I want to be careful here because I know there are reasons why, uh, because I know that burnout can happen. I know that people can be ran ragged as it relates to serving and contributing to the church and doing all those types of things. But from my experience as a pastor, one of the leading questions that I think is on people's minds when they're looking to get involved in a church or they visit a church or whatever the case may be, they ask the question, okay, how can this church serve me? How can this church serve me and my family? And on some level, that's a good question to ask. We need to be asking that questions when we're looking for a church to sink into. We're looking into a body of Christ to be a part of. How can this church serve me? Because you have needs, you have families. You have things that, 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 that need to be met by the gospel in the context of the church. So it's a legitimate question. But at some point in time, you have to graduate. You have to graduate from asking the question, how can this church serve me? How can this missional community serve me? How can this group serve me? You have to graduate from that question and move on to a different question, which is how can I serve the church? How can I bless the church? How can I contribute to the maturation of this body? Now, we are a church that's seven, that's seven years old in this church, in this city, and we have, there, there are areas where we are lacking. We are deficient in some areas in the life of our church. And that means when you step into this church, you might see a hole that says, well, I, uh, this need isn't going to be met in your life, but then you could look at it that way, or you could look at it and says, well, there's this hole. I wonder if I could fill it. There's this void, I wonder if I can, there's this need, I wonder if I can meet it. And so you begin to prayerfully consider, not so much how can the church serve me, but how can I serve the church? 
Because if we're going to mature and grow up together in love, we must seek to serve, not simply to be served. We must embrace a contributor's mentality and not just a consumer's mentality. Wondering how can we contribute to the maturation of the church. And then lastly, not only do we want to seek to be served, not seek to serve, not simply to be served, we also want to learn, and this is perhaps the most important one of all of them because I think this would drive everything else. If we can get this, it's going to drive everything else in the life of our church. And it's this dynamic that if we're going to grow together, we need to learn to speak the gospel into every area of our lives. We must engage that mission. How do we learn not only what the gospel is, but how the gospel applies to every area of human life and human existence? I get this from verse 15 where we're told speaking the truth in love. Now, this hit me this past week in a way that it hadn't hit me before because oftentimes when speaking the truth in love is talked about, it's like, well, somebody's doing something wrong and you need to go call them out on it, but you need to call them out on it with a smile on your face. And uh, that way you're speaking the truth in love. You can say anything as long as you're smiling. It doesn't really matter what you're saying. Just smile and speak the truth in love. But I think if you drop down to verse 21, You get a better understanding of what it means to speak the truth in love. It's not just about telling people hard things while you're smiling. Look at verse 21, and we get an understanding of what this is. He says, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And it's a parallel expression to what Paul says in verse 15. So there's a sense in which we can say speaking the truth in love is speaking the truth as it is in Jesus. In other words, speaking the truth in love means to speak the gospel into every area of life. It means to speak the gospel so that we are growing up into Christ and not being drawn away from Christ. It means graduating from your understanding of the gospel that says, look, I'm going to believe the gospel so that I can go to heaven when I die. He's saying, look, that's a very immature understanding of the gospel. A mature understanding of the gospel says the gospel isn't just what I believe to go to heaven. The gospel is what fuels my life in the here and now. So I live my life constantly in light of the reality of Jesus' life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, his ascension and his imminent return. That all of those facets of Jesus' story taken together has something to say about every facet of our individual stories. And it has something to say about every area of our lives. And so one of the things that we want to drive after in the life of the church is is equipping everyone to do this. How do we equip everyone to Speak the gospel into every area of life, from how you relate to your spouse, from how you engage your singleness, to how you parent your children, to how you go about your career. How can the gospel give shape to each and every one of those areas of life? Or maybe I should just ask you, do you believe that the gospel has rights over every area of your life? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and salvation is very holistic? It is very comprehensive. Do you believe that about the gospel? And if you believe that about the gospel, then let's move towards and continue cultivating what we call gospel clarity in the life of the church so that we can know not only what the gospel is, but how the gospel applies to every area of our lives. I'll give you one example as we kind of draw this to a close. One example of how this works. And this example may be taken, how does the gospel relate to your relationship to money and generosity? 
And it's a very interesting moment in another letter that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's writing to a church and he's encouraging the church to be generous. He's saying, look, there are these needs and we need you to contribute to meeting these needs uh, amongst other churches in the surrounding region. And Paul doesn't just come in and say, look, I'm an apostle, I'm in charge, lay the hammer down, you need to give to these needs. That's not how he does it. He doesn't come in firing imperatives and firing commands saying, this is what you should do because you're a Christian. No, what he does is he, take, he has taken the gospel into his life, he's thinking the gospel through, and he starts to turn the gospel out towards the church. And he says, look, if I'm going to talk about giving... And if I'm going to talk about money and generosity, I'm going to talk about it in a way that anchors your relationship to money and anchors generosity in the reality of Jesus' story. And so this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. As he's encouraging this church to grow, he says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he was in glory, he had everything. For your sake he became poor. Meaning he stepped out of heaven and he journeyed through this world among us. He, he walked among us, and in many ways, Jesus lived the life as a, as a homeless rabbi, just journeying through this world. And, and then we're told, not only did he become poor, but he did this for our sake, so that by his poverty, that is by his submission, all that he had given up, you and I might become rich. Now, Paul there is certainly talking about spiritual wealth and spiritual riches. He's not talking about material wealth, but he's saying, look, if you're spiritually Rich, And if you've been made spiritually wealthy by this gospel, then that should set your heart free from the love of money. It should set your heart free from fearing the loss of money. So that all of a sudden when you have the opportunity to give and to contribute generously to those in need around you, you're not thinking, okay, I don't know if I can do this because I'm afraid of missing out on something that I, want, I might want later down the road. No, you're living in light of the gospel. You're thinking about what Jesus did when he came and he lived and he died and he rose again. And, and you're all of a sudden you're saying, I'm not afraid of what I might miss out in the future because I know ultimately I'm not going to miss out on anything. I know in light of the gospel, I have been rich. I have been made rich in the eyes of God. And when we are there and we're thinking along those lines, we're not going to hoard our stuff and not, we're not going to be afraid of losing our stuff. We're going to become generous people. And the gospel then will start firing that engine in our lives. The reality of the story of Jesus is brought to bear on our relationship with money so that we live our lives not with clenched fists, but we live our lives with open hands and we become just as generous as Jesus. And you know Jesus' generosity is highlighted in this text when you look at what he's doing now and how he's serving the church He's giving gifts to his people. He's filling his people with his spirit, and he's empowering them to become the people that he wants them to be, and he's giving these gifts generously and lavishly, uh, lavishing them upon his people. And so we serve a generous Savior, and we start living generous lives, and all of a sudden money no longer controls us. We're no longer bowing to money we're bowing to Jesus. And when you bow to Jesus, you find yourself free to become a generous person that can glorify God and do much good in this world. All of which is fueled by the gospel. It's all of which is fueled by learning to speak the gospel into every area of life. And that's just one example. And as time goes on, we're going to flesh out more of this, especially in our missional communities. Our missional communities next month are going to be diving into this dynamic, how we speak the gospel into every area of our lives. And so if you're not yet connected to one of those groups, 
Let me encourage you to connect with it because we're going to be fleshing this out and growing in this area so that we might mature as a church, mature as an expression of the body of Christ in the world. Now with that said, let me invite you to pray with me and we will continue